Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, it's Jake here. And the launch of Deep Cover Season 2 is just over a month away. We're hard at work putting it together for you. It involves political corruption, a legendary hitman, an infamous murder trial, and an undercover operative who's been on the run from the mob for decades. The moment I put the wire around the first time, my life was over. I could never practice law anymore. I could never stay in the city anymore. If it ever got out, they would kill me in a heartbeat. So, stay tuned for Season 2 of Deep Cover, Mobland, coming your way January 24th. In the meantime, I wanted to share a fun conversation that takes us back to Season 1 of Deep Cover. If you were a fan of the first season, I think you're really going to like this behind-the-scenes story. And if you haven't listened to Deep Cover Season 1 yet, now is a great time to go back and catch up on it. You might remember from Episode 1, Deep Cover started when I got a hold of a novel. The book had no cover, no copyright page, I mean, not even a title or an author listed. It just said, Spring 1982. And then it started. A single sodium street light out on the far edge of the parking lot shone down on a payphone. This, of course, is the actor Walton Goggins, who did all the voiceover readings from Ned's novel. From that lonely pool of light, the darkness of the parking lot reached out a good 25 yards before the glow of neon beer signs signaled the borders of another America. This was the lawless America. This was the rebel yell. This was easy money, fast bikes, and girls that were easier and faster than both. Eventually, of course, I met the guy who the novel was based on, Ned Timmons. 
And he told me that this book, this novel about him, had many different authors. Over the years, Ned worked with at least four different writers. These were people he hired to tell his story. What I'd read, apparently, was a mashup of all their efforts. Plus, Ned himself worked on it. He's still tinkering with it. In fact, if there are any book editors listening, give him a call. Anyway, I always kind of wondered who these writers were. You know, what their take on Ned was. Because, in a way, I kind of felt like they were my predecessors. And then, shortly after Deep Cover was released, one of them reached out to me. His name is James Coyne. He's a screenwriter who lives out in Southern California. He told me he worked with Ned on and off over the years. So one afternoon, I called up James to hear all about it. He started by telling me about the first time he met Ned. I think he was much more understated than I expected him to be based on the story. You know, he's very kind of, uh, you know, he, he blends right in, right? With sort of a standard Midwest American and uh, how he dresses and carries himself. Um, and it's not until you kind of see, you know, you, you start looking him in the eye that you start to sense the depths there. But he stands out in Los Angeles for being very normal kind of Midwest American. But um, in, uh, in any other place in the country, you know, you'd walk right by him in the airport and never know who he was. It's interesting. I think, you know, so... He had he had gone through, he had worked with other writers, and I knew that they had kind of come before me. I really didn't know a lot of the details. I'd seen what it turns out was was an early version of your novel. It was kind of mysterious. It didn't even have all the the pages and whatnot. Um, but I got this, but I did understand that this is a guy who had been trying to tell his story in one form or another for a long time, like well over a decade before I ever met him. I think his efforts went back, you know, more than a decade before meeting me. Really? Um, you know, I, yeah, because I saw, I saw maybe a chapter and a half of somebody else's work, which was attempting to be a much more straightforward kind of, um, you know, piece. I can't remember the writer's name again. It was, you know, it came in a box with, you know, uh, some photographs of, you know, shrunken heads. And, yeah, I, I think I saw the same box. We both got the same box. <laughs> I sent the box back to him at some point. It was it was difficult to parse um, and, and didn't really have an organizational principle, so it was it was hard to uh, to get into. But um, yeah, I was I was certainly not the first person to come in. You know, I the novel was great, and it was it's interesting. I'll share with you. I I did a first episode of the podcast without the novel, and it and um, I it didn't quite hit. It didn't quite work, and so. Someone, you know, and also there was like not an obvious point of entry for me as the storyteller. And I guess I was just telling someone how it had come onto my radar. And I started talking about the novel. And then someone said, why don't you just say that? Like, you know, it's like the, you know, why don't you just tell like the, like the way it really began and the most obvious point of entry. So then I said, okay, I start telling the story of the novel. And then we started reading it. And I realized the novel was so great because it was this one version of Ned. Like in in a way, we all have the novel version of ourselves, right? Like I, I, I have it, you have it. We all have like the kind of, you know, the way we would like to see ourselves. Um, and so, and, and this was just actually written out in novel form. And so it ended up being like an important part of like the layering of who, of who Ned was. And it's clear, it was clear to me that that you had spent a lot of time getting to know this guy and, and also kind of channeling his voice. How how did you channel his voice? Because 
you know, having spent a lot of time with Ned, the voice in the novel often does sound exactly like him. Were you using tape recordings? Were you taking notes? How were you doing it? For me, the joy of listening to Ned and 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 hearing these stories and and you know the sort of there's a there's a deep aspect of wish fulfillment in what Ned did, right? That from a certain point of view, right? Like you know that. <laughs> you know, he, he's, he's like, he's like something out of a Walter Hill, uh, screenplay, right? Like there's a, you, you can, you can feel the, the movie, right? You know, Timmons, I want your badge and your gun on my desk, right? Like, you know, there's a, um, and so I think for me in getting into writing the book and, and what was so much fun about writing the book was, was breathing into that aspect of the wish fulfillment that is inherent to Ned's story anyway. And so if I adopted some of his language or if I subconsciously picked up on some of his tone, I think that's just kind of naturally part of my process. You know, I, I, I think everything I write sort of tends to have the, the tone of what it wants to be. You try to find a tone that suits the material. And I think, you know, Ned provided all of that over he and I spending so many years together uh, talking about these things. You know, I, I love that you were fascinated by the pig. Uh, you know, the one of the screenplays opens on the the pig with the mush with the, being fed the uh, the messed up uh, onions because that was just such an amazing image. And you're like, I, I gotta see that fucking pig on screen. Um, yeah, I love so, the pig. The pig was great. Oh, the pig's amazing. There's a big field and there's mountains up each side, and uh, there's some hillbilly there at the gate. And uh, he meets us and gets us through this gate, and it's you know it's just a two-track sagebrush, cactus, and just high mountain desert. And uh, we get near the barn, and out comes this freaking 500-pound pig. I mean, a big pig. And I said, "What the fuck is it? Oh, that's the guard hog." That's what I mean. I said, "Well, he smells people if they're." You know, in the mountains, are trying to surveil us or whatever. He'll, and, and that's true. A pig has one of the best noses in the world. What really surprised Ned is what these hillbillies are feeding their prized guard pig. They'd soak a bug onion, sweet onion, in in meth, and throw it to the pig. The pig loved it. I mean, he he's like, ah, ah, you know, he wanted a, he wanted a fucking onion. And, you know, I just didn't really trust him because he's really fucking big and he's got tusks and shit. And this was Ned's life now sneaking past a drugged-up pig. What a detail. What was really interesting is that the moments you chose to use some excerpts from the book and with the music is that what, what, what I found is that all of a sudden, like, some part of the story became very real and alive in a way that, you know, sort of the more journalistic approach can get distant, right? Like you you can feel a step removed when somebody is is as clinically accurate as you are being. And yet somehow when the music and the story and all of that comes, it it starts to become alive in a way that I think nonfiction has a much harder time being than fiction. No, and I'm so glad that we got Walton Goggins to to read it because originally in just early versions I was reading it and it didn't have the same effect because you really wanted uh, it to have kind of a distinct voice and like it was just much more effective to have it removed from me. He's fantastic. They'll kill us, bros. We fuck up and they'll kill us, you understand? No one will even find the bodies. Just shoot us and stick us in a vat of acid or some shit. And you have any idea how fucking dangerous this shit is? Ned nodded, but Toby grabbed him by the arm, leaned in close, 
Close enough he could smell the ether, the cigarettes, and the B.O. Do you, bros? You fucking better. Cause it's me and you out there dangling. Right over the goddamn edge. Let me go back to a question that I was getting at earlier, which is that, so you start working with him and you're saying that maybe as much as a decade before that, he was working on telling the story, which seems uh, possible to me, um, which begs this bigger question of why was it so important to Ned to tell the story? He went to enormous trouble and enormous expense over decades to do it, which is just really unusual. What was driving that? Why was it so important to him? Do you not sense from him that 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 he 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 wants a certain validation for his role in this, and that he he did feel somewhat sidelined and and forgotten um, in an investigation that took so much from him and cost him so much personally and professionally that somehow it would all be okay if if the story was out there in the world and that he got the credit and recognition that he felt he was due. Yes. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think there's some of that. And then I think, too, he gets a like, you know, I think a lot of people around him say, holy shit, this should be a movie. Holy shit, this should be a book. You know, like, this is incredible. What a story. You know, why doesn't anyone know this? And, you know, you, how many times do you hear that before you th- start to think to yourself, you know, they're probably right. So so what is he he hired you to write? the Like, how he, did that work? He had he had hired me to work on the scripts uh, and uh then when we had kind of hit the wall, he approached me about doing a book. So just to be clear here, it starts off it starts off as you writing this script. So he hired you initially to write a, a script for a feature yes, length film. Right. Correct. Correct. Uh, which I did, you know, again, many, many versions of and, and worked with some pretty high level people to get into a good position and uh you know, I think the 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 the, the issue where our story kind of hit a brick wall in Hollywood, especially was, you know, it's, it's difficult with marijuana, right? Like, you know, these guys are bringing in hundreds of thousands of pounds of marijuana. They're doing billions of dollars worth of business, but it's, it's just, it's an inherently less threatening um, drug than, you know, if, if these guys have been importing, you know, barge loads of cocaine, you know, this story would, I think, have been a movie 10 years ago because cocaine is, is somehow so much more, you know, it's it's bigger, it's sexier, it's more dangerous. It, you can turn it into crack and ruin an entire community, right? You know, you can, uh, you know, you can let loose a shitload of marijuana on an entire community and, you know, fast food sales go up, right? It's just not, it, it just doesn't have the same impact uh, as uh, as some of the the dirtier, nastier drugs that are out there, and I think that that really harmed our ability to market the story. That's fascinating. Did 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 they? Were you told that explicitly? Were people coming back to you, producers, or? I I, I yeah, I heard that explicitly in meetings. You know, well. could we could we up the cocaine factor? You know, it's like well, not really, right? Like you know, if if we're being honest to the story. After the break. More on my conversation with James. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Do you guys then come up with a, whose idea is it to write a novel? You know, I think it was Ned who came to me with that idea. And says, like, let's just turn this into a book or? Yeah, let's turn this into a book. You know, the story better than anyone else at this point. You know, uh, I like you, you know, um, you know, wh wh what could you, wh what could we possibly do this for financially? And I sort of looked at, you know, where I was and, and what I was doing. And I said, you know, look, I can give you about 12 weeks, right? And so this is what I need to live for the next 12 weeks. And if you can afford that, then I'll write you the book. You, you wrote that book in 12 weeks? Yes. <laughs> That's crazy. That's like a... 
full length <laughs> novel in pretty good shape well, too. And, yeah, and that's, and, that's and well, you have the you have the uh, the much abridged version. My first draft was, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of eighty five to ninety thousand words. So you're working on the book when he's when you're going over these. Like what do you like? What do you make of the stories, for example, that he tells you about Toby? For example, I, I was Toby was a, a character that fascinated me. I couldn't actually talk to him because he had passed away. As you know, I talked to his son. I remember riding the motorcycles with him, with me on the back. He was just kind of reckless and dangerous. I was screaming, holding on for dear life, right? And he just thought it was funny. Um, but uh, that was him. It's he wasn't. Uh, there wasn't anything that, uh, that, that he was afraid of. Nothing, not, not, nothing. What was your take on, on Toby? Well, you know, unlike you, it was entirely through Ned's eyes, right? You know, for me, a lot of that stuff was about like, you know, okay, so Ned's giving me some really, Ned has these great details, amazing. And, and the way he has tagged these details to people, uh, is is a very natural storyteller's kind of instinct, right? You know, in, in, a, in a different world, Ned would be a great screenwriter because of how he sort of sees detail in people and what he chooses to, to associate with them. I, I would ask him, especially early in the process, right? You know, he's taking all these amazing risks and he's, you know, he's spending months and months, you know, stinking like a biker and hanging out with these assholes who clearly he doesn't like, you know, and uh, and, and, and putting himself in danger and, and wrecking his family for this case, right? And why, right? Like, why? What was the, what was the driving motivation? Again, if you think about... If you if you said to if you said to me you know James you know I want you to be a hero and I want you to take these drugs off the streets right you know you go okay I, I can I can buy into that on some level but what was the what was the reason that you were so devoted to doing this and so willing to kind of you know dig as deep as you did and I could never get a straight answer right like it was there was never a satisfactory kind of response from Ned in any of that. Years go by, and I had flown out to Michigan to do sort of my last round of interviews with him before getting started on the book. And at that time, he had a home in the northern part of the Lower Peninsula, uh, this beautiful hunting cabin that he has. Um, and he took me around the whole property, and he had done things like, um, you know, like the, the woods had been cleared in these fairways, almost like a golf course. And then he would plant all of these different herbs and flowers and, and seeds that would be perfect for deer. So the deer would come out of the cover of the, the woods and, and into these places that are basically like a smorgasbord for them, a, a, a buffet, all you can eat of their most favorite plants. And they'd be completely exposed while they were eating them. And there'd be a little hide built down at the other end of the fairway. So a hunter could kill the deer if they wanted to. It was a hunter's paradise. And inside the lodge, which was, you know, I'm going to be conservative and say it was a 5,000 square foot home. He had a taxidermy of almost anything that has ever taken a breath that you could shoot at. Uh, The bears, uh, dozens of them. These these creatures with, you know, beautiful horns that he'd killed in Africa. Lions, um, you know, just if, if he could kill it, he had shot it. And I got up to pee in the middle of the night and it was like, you know, it was like a horror film, like a Frank Oz movie, right? Like where these things are kind of going to come alive in the darkness because every square surf at some point, like a bat had fucking died in the gutter and he had it taxidermied as a joke, right? It was, it was, it was, it was, was, no, it was beyond creepy. It really was. Um, And what I suddenly realized is that 
this was why Ned was an FBI agent, right? That badge was his hunting license for his favorite thing to hunt, which is human beings. And starting from the youngest age, some of his earliest memories, Ned will tell you that his granddad would let him stand up in a backpack while they would go out bird hunting, right? Like, you know, Ned's very earliest memories are, you know, hunting. Wow. And the thing that, you know, that, that, being an FBI agent really meant to Ned was this opportunity to go out and hunt the most intelligent and the most dangerous animal on earth. And when you listen to how he talks about the people that he would, you know, go out and get, right? What are the words that you've heard a hundred times out of Ned's, oh, this guy's a killer. Right? How many times have you heard that? Yeah, that's, he loves that, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, and I agree with you. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I think it's insightful and, and I agree that there's the challenge of it uh, as the hunter. But he also has this side of him that he befriends these guys. Um, you know, Lee Rich uh, being one of them, but also there was a biker that I met um, that, that you describe in the novel who who knew Toby, who remains close to to this day. I think he is, he does have that hunting instinct, but simultaneously, he also, some of these guys, he seems to form like a really intense and lasting bond with um that's somewhat but only after he's only after he's bagged them you know it's like now they're you know their teeth have been pulled they're they're declawed you know i i i, I you know it's not a perfect metaphor and, and it never could be but you know i don't I, I i think there's a deep humanity to ned i don't say that to say that he's some sort of sociopath who just likes to go out and kill people or hunt them down but that the thrill of the chase is is the is is everything to him you know even after he leaves the fbi he you know there's that whole second chapter of his you know work in columbia that was um you know fascinating and and done almost without any kind of supervision or the aegis and protection of any kind of an agency that he was working freelance because he was so hooked on that that adrenaline rush that he had been you know living for all of those years yeah if there's a part two of this like you know we said that the novel ended in kind of a of a cliffhanger with the woman showing up and saying you know i need your help i, I have someone down in columbia who's in trouble what is that kind of the elevator pitch for that sequel? Ned did go to Columbia to start a fishing business after he left the FBI. Uh, and once he gets down there, he ends up doing a lot of sort of contract work for customs um, and sort of falls very naturally back into being an FBI agent again, um, or, or rather an undercover operative again. Um, and is bombed at the Hilton. He tells this amazing story um, of being out on this little island off the coast of uh, Colombia where the bugs were so intense at night that you had to like go to sleep in a hammock wearing a wetsuit and, uh, and cover your face with a towel so that bugs couldn't eat you. There was, uh, there, there was a lot of detail in that post-FBI part of Ned's life, which was really, really interesting. Um, and because it was, you know, um, b being done under his own auspices, it was infinitely more dangerous. And I think he, he must have reached a point where, you know, what you and I would consider danger uh, wouldn't even, you know, wouldn't even get his heart rate up. And he, you know, I think that the, the adrenaline uh, hit that he was looking for was, was probably going to take him to getting killed down there until, you know, he kind of gets his shit together. Uh, and I thought that that would have made a very interesting follow-up to the first book. Is there anything else that I, that I didn't ask that you think is worth mentioning or that occurred to you, you know, in the last little bit while you heard the podcast or afterwards? I think the, the the thing that I found just so wonderful about the podcast was the, the the way you really dug in and went past those those blocks that I never did. 
I'm so gratified that I kind of get some of the answers uh, on a story that, you know, I lived with so intimately for so very long. Three drafts of a script and a, and a novel is, you know, that's, that's, that's six, eight months out of my life spent, you know, in Ned's head. To finally kind of see the larger perspective that you delivered was intensely gratifying to me. I was able to, to you know, kind of turn off any personal ego issues and, uh, and, and really just enjoy what you did. So I, I thank you for that. Well, I mean, likewise, I feel, um, I feel grateful to you. I mean, I, it was the novel that, 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 that drew me into this story. And, and as, again, as I said to you earlier, I felt like it was in just a, a faithful and kind of un, almost uncanny channeling of Ned's psyche. There were times when I was working on the story and I, I had thousands of pages. I mean, I, the amount of transcripts I have is crazy, but often when I want to try to really get a sense of how Ned thought about something, I would go to the novel. Um, and I think that's just a reflection of the fact that you spent so much time talking to him and thinking about him and and kind of channeling his character. I was very much appreciative to to have it and to, and to get a chance to talk with you. Well, this has been a real pleasure for me as well. After my talk with James, I kept thinking back to what he said about Ned's hunting lodge and the rows and rows of taxidermied animals. That's all true, by the way. Ned told me there were 11 bears, two moose, two mountain lions, three caribou, two arctic wolves, five to six deer, and 17 assorted animals from a hunting trip in Africa. And that's just to name a few. He sent pictures, actually. Imagine the Museum of Natural History in New York City, only a lot more crowded. So look, I get why James picked up on this, why he saw Ned as the hunter. And I even posed this question straight to Ned. Is this why you did it? The thrill of the hunt? And Ned, well, he kind of answered me in that classic roundabout Ned way, where he started telling one story and then another about the bikers, how he spent years with guys like this. I think Ned was reminding me that, yeah, sure, in the Hollywood version of this story, he might be cast as the Count Zaroff character. You know, from the movie The Most Dangerous Game, the guy who hunts humans for fun. In reality, Ned was more like, well, a babysitter. That's how he put it anyhow. Because there was never a moment where he could just breathe easy, fix a drink, and stare into the glassy eyes of a head that was mounted on his wall. This bonus episode of Deep Cover was produced by Jacob Smith, Amy Gaines, and Jennifer Sanchez, and was edited by Karen Chikurji. Original music and our theme was composed by Luis Guerra. Mia Lobel is Pushkin's executive producer. Special thanks to Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, and Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin Industries. Additional thanks to Jeff Singer at Stowaway Entertainment. Deep Cover is a production of Pushkin Industries. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can hear Deep Cover ads-free. You'll also be able to binge all of Season 2 at once. Find Pushkin Plus on the Deep Cover show page, in Apple Podcasts, or at pushkin.fm slash plus. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jake Halpern.
And if you've listened this far, here's one more clip from Deep Cover Season 2, Mobland, launching January 24th. So Nick, can you just tell me, like, if I'm a guy who owes you money for a juice loan and I have not paid you, can you just give me an example of what you would say to me? Like, I tell you, Jake, you know, you, you got 24 hours to come up with that money. If you don't come up with the money, I'm going to come bust your fucking head or pop your eyes out and eat them like grapes. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrict Supply NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.